Welcome to the podcast of Redeemer Baptist Church of Panama. We hope that you enjoyed listening to the sermons and other audio provided by us. Feel free to share what you find here, and we hope that it will be beneficial to you as you seek to know and follow Christ. So if you turn in your Bibles to Titus chapter 2, and we'll start in verse 11. But let me remind us of what it is we're looking at here. Titus is a letter uh, from Paul to Titus. Uh, It's one of the pastoral epistles, as I've mentioned before. Uh, Many of Paul's letters are to churches. You have the letter to the Corinthians, to the Romans, to the Thessalonians. Those are all letters to churches. And um, the the pastoral epistles are some letters to individuals. And these are letters to pastors. And these are giving... Um, the, the pastorals are First and Second Timothy and Titus. These are giving uh, instructions to these younger pastors and how they're to do their work. Um, Paul, you know, he went on missionary journeys. He traveled around preaching the gospel, but he didn't always stay around in a city long enough to put a church in order. Sometimes he just preached the gospel, people got saved, and he moved on. And this was one of those places, the island of Crete. Titus was the one who was left behind there to be able to set everything in order, to be able to appoint leaders. And, uh, and he was there to uh, help the church be an orderly church. So one of the things we've seen throughout Titus is that there's this emphasis on how right doctrine and right living go together. If we get one or the other wrong, we're probably going to mess up in both. So if, if we have our doctrine wrong, it's going to lead to some problem in the way that we live. Uh, or if, if there's some problem in the way we live, it might point back to an area that's wrong in our doctrine. Tonight's passage is a clear example of this. Tonight's passage we're looking at in, in verses 11 through 15 It is the theological motivation for why we are to be obedient to God and why we are to be a people that are characterized by good works. Let's look at what um, Titus chapter 2, starting in verse 11, says. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for, for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, who are zealous for good works. Declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for what Jesus did. We thank you that he gave his life for us. No one took it from Him, but He gave it willingly as a sacrifice that atoned Your wrath. That we could be made in right relationship with You again. Lord, we thank You that You have called us to Yourself. 
Lord, that you are changing us from one degree of glory to another. Father, we thank you for what you have done among us already in answering prayers. And Lord, we pray that you would continue to do that work, that you might be glorified in this place. Father, be with me. I'm weak and frail. I don't have what it takes to, to preach and to be convincing and convict people's hearts. Lord, that is the work of the Holy Spirit. Lord, I pray that you would, you, you are here, but we pray that you would make yourself evident, that we would feel your presence, Lord, that we, we would know and glorify you tonight, in Jesus' name, amen. I'm going to do something a little bit out of character tonight. I'm going to start with the last verse. Declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. As I said, this letter is to a young pastor and he's being given instructions. When I first began to look at these verses, I I kind of just skipped over. I didn't skip over it, but I just, I, I glossed over quickly these last words, thinking that they were synonymous with each other. Declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. But they're not synonyms. There's a difference, and it's actually reflected in the rest of the passage. Declare these things is what he begins to say first. We are making, when we preach the gospel, when we share the gospel of Jesus Christ's saving work, we are not exhorting. We're not telling people what they should do. We are declaring a message of what God has already done. We are declaring that God sent His Son, Jesus, to die for sinners. And that He purchased us on the cross. We're declaring a message that was, de- that was hoped for throughout the Old Testament. There was a, a promised seed that was going to come. This, this one who was a, a, a descendant of Eve who was going to come and crush the serpent's head. And that one came. That one finally came and it was Jesus Christ. And he lived a sinless life. Lived 33 years, never sinned one time. He actively obeyed the Father. And He went all the way to the cross, being a sacrifice as an atonement for our sins. When we do this, when we proclaim that, we are declaring something that God has already done. That is declaration. And Paul also says to Titus, you are to exhort others. That's the, that's the practical side of things. God has done this, we declare, and we exhort people, because God has done this, this is how we should live. We should be self-controlled, live godly lives, be zealous for good works. That's how those two things fit together. And then rebuke. Here he's pointing back to the end of chapter 1 that we looked at a couple of weeks ago. A couple of weeks ago we saw these false teachers 
that were of the circumcision party that were trying to add works to the gospel. They were saying that uh, you know someone had to be if there was a Gentile who wanted to become a Christian, they had to be circumcised in order to become a Christian. They had to become Jewish first. They were adding something to just faith in Jesus. And that was, that was a false teaching. And Paul told Titus to rebuke that. So preaching, what we're doing right now, what I'm doing, what we're listening to, is a declaration of what God has already done in Jesus Christ. It's an exhortation, what should we do because of what God has already done in Jesus Christ And hopefully tonight it's not a rebuke. Although maybe sometimes when we we hear this, and we aren't measuring up, maybe it's the Holy Spirit prodding us along. Maybe that's where the rebuke comes in. Let's look at verse 11 here. This is what we are declaring For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. First of all, the gospel is grace. It is not do these things to earn acceptance before God. It is grace. It is grace all the way. It is all grace. It is a gift. We don't... Uh, We don't have to earn anything. We don't uh, earn wages. The wages that we would get, if if we tried to earn anything, all we would get is death. Because the Bible says, the wages of sin is death. And we can never do enough good works to outweigh all of our sin. But the grace of God, this grace that brings salvation has appeared. It's appeared. It was hidden throughout the ages in the Old Testament. Like I said before, it, it, was, it was hidden. You know, There was a promise of, of a seed of the woman that would one day come. It was hidden though. We didn't know what Jesus was going to be like back in the Old Testament days. And there was, there was a promise again of, about Abraham's descendant who would one day come and be a blessing to all nations. But it was still hidden. And it was only among the Jewish people. Salvation at that time, there was God's chosen people, the Jewish people. And and they didn't really take the message out to others. Now you see occasionally a Gentile who would become someone who had faith in the Lord. You think of examples like um, um, Rahab who who hid the spies that came in. We think of examples um, like Ruth, who was a Moabitess. But she said, where you go, I will go, and where you lodge, I will lodge, and, where, and your God will be my God. There's some examples. But for the most part, the gospel of Jesus coming and making the way for all people to be saved was hidden in the Old Testament. And now we live in a new era where Jesus has come. He died publicly on the cross to take the sin of anyone who has faith in Him. Whether Jew or Greek, black, white, Hispanic, Asian, 
Doesn't matter any category from rich, poor, tattoos or no. God has given salvation to all men, regardless of any category, in the sending of Jesus Christ. And salvation is by grace. That's verse 11. Verse 12. Training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. I want us to notice something here. Grace comes first. The grace of God has appeared, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. The grace is what precedes our living. Godly lives. Self-controlled lives. It That's what comes first. We cannot put the cart before the horse. That's an old expression. And and for you kids back there, you you probably need a little bit of an explanation of putting the cart before the horse. Do you understand what I mean? Okay. You got the cart and you got the horse. The horse is pulling the cart along. Okay. Now, if they're switched around and the cart is here and the horse is over here, the cart can't pull the horse along, can it? No. So if you put the cart before the horse, there's a problem, right? Okay, if we try to say good works, if, okay, good works, that's the cart. The horse is grace. The, go- the horse is what comes first, and it is the thing that gives us fuel for obedience to God. If we put works, good works first, we'll never do enough. We'll always just be spinning our wheels, trying to be good enough, to be acceptable to God. And that's, that's because we're getting it backwards when we do that. We obey out of the fact that God has extended us grace. That He has given us so much. He has given us the greatest treasure in the world. Training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. We could get this wrong. It says to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. When we renounce something, we're not talking about other people. We're talking about our own selves. When we hear this and it says renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, where it's not the gospel is not training us to go and point out where other people are ungodly or fulfilling their worldly passions. The training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions is about inside of our own hearts. The gospel trains us to repent to turn away and to renounce all those things that we used to do before we experience that grace of Jesus Christ. Primarily, when the gospel trains us to renounce ungodliness, we're talking about ourselves. 
We're talking about, I used to do this. Or maybe, I'm still doing this and I'm renouncing it. I'm saying, it is sinful, I'm calling it what it is, and I, with everything in me, I'm turning away from it and I want to follow after Jesus. The sanctification, okay, when we are saved... We experience this grace. We are justified. God legally declares us righteousness, righteous. We are perfectly righteous and acceptable to God in His sight. But we are sanctified as well. God changes us and makes us more and more like Jesus. That doesn't happen all at once. We still have evil within our hearts. We still have uh, sin. We have laziness. Uh, we, we, we don't want to do things. Or, or we still struggle with different lusts of the flesh, whether it be food, whether it be some substance, whether, whatever it is. We still struggle with those things. And the grace of God is what trains our hearts to renounce all those things. It doesn't work to just do it by our own willpower and white-knuckling. The way to have any victory over the ungodliness and worldly passions that remain in our hearts is to look to grace, to look to Jesus, to look at what He has done for us. And that sets us free. It says to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. You know, in verse 11, it's talking about declaring what Jesus has already done. In verse 12, we are, this is what we are to do. We're exhorting and saying this is how we are to live now, in the present age. And then he turns in verse 13 to the future. We're looking forward to something. That's another thing that gives us motivation. As we want to follow Jesus, as we want to live like Him, one of the things that motivates us is verse 13. Waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. He is coming again. Jesus is alive today and He is alive forevermore. He died 2,000 years ago. He was buried in a tomb and He rose three days later never to die again. He ascended into heaven where He sits right now at the Father's right hand, ruling and reigning over His creation and interceding to the Father for us, but one day He is coming again. Jesus Christ will split the sky. He's going to come riding on a white horse, the Scripture says. And He's going to have, what the Scripture says, a sword coming out of His mouth and fire in His eyes. You know, when the world hears what we believe about sexual morality, they think we're weird. We believe weirder things than that. <laughs> We believe that a previously dead man is going to come back riding a horse coming out of the clouds. That is our hope. That is our hope. 
waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. He was fully God and fully man, and He's coming again. And he, when He comes again, what is wrong now, where there is still sin in our own hearts, where there is still tragedy and suffering in the world, Jesus is going to come and He's going to wipe away every tear from our eyes. There will no longer be any sickness, no longer be any pain, no longer be any suffering. Jesus will be there and He will set all things right. Verse 14. He comes back and He talks more about what Jesus did. We're coming back and we're centering around that declaration of the Gospel who gave Himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for Himself a people for His own possession who are zealous for good works. That declaration, the Gospel that we preach, is that He gave Himself for us. Nobody took His life from Him. Jesus wasn't murdered. He gave His life for us. He gave it as a sacrifice. He gave it to redeem us, it says here. He says, to redeem us from all lawlessness. We were slaves. In our fallen nature, before we trust in Jesus Christ, we are slaves to sin. We want to do one thing and we can't do it. We want to do what's right and we can't do it. All of our efforts fail. We are slaves to sin. Slaves to our own corruption. And Jesus came to buy us back. When we talk about redeeming, Guys back there, you kids, you know what redeeming is? You ever redeem a coupon? What, is it, what do you do whenever you redeem a coupon? You take the coupon to the store, say, I want to redeem this coupon. I've got one in my pocket for kahunas in Greenville. Okay, I got it in a birthday card. Somebody gave me this coupon and I can take it to Kahuta's in Greenville and they'll give me ice cream for it. So I'm going to take that coupon and I'm going to redeem it. Well, what Jesus did for us is He redeemed us by His own blood. We were slaves, we were, we were fallen, and He came and He bought us back. Like, like the slave in the slave market, He bought us and He sets us free. He has redeemed us from all lawlessness. And to purify for Himself a people for His own possession. He purifies us. We were filthy, muddy, in the muck, in the mire. Nobody would have wanted us. But Jesus came and He picked us up. He bought us and He washed us off. He made us white as snow. What can wash away my sins Nothing but the blood of Jesus. He has purified 
for Himself. He purified us for Himself. If we belong, if, if, if we have trusted in Jesus, if we have experienced the grace that this is talking about, we are His. We are no longer our own, but He has redeemed us. He has bought us for Himself. He has purified us for Himself. We are His precious possession. A people for His own possession. My daughter Amanda that's back there on the back row, she's got this little blanket that, she, we get, we, that her uh, grandmother made for her whenever she was just a baby. She still sleeps with it today. I hope that I'm not embarrassing you, Amanda. She still sleeps with it today. She wouldn't be caught dead sleeping without it. If she forgets it, whenever she goes to sleep at her grandparents' house or something like that, we get a phone call. And we say, too bad. Sorry, you're going to have to learn to sleep without it sometime. (laughs) (laughs) But that is her precious possession. And we are that to Jesus. We are His precious possession that He has redeemed and washed for Himself. While we were slaves to our sin, while we were in the mud and in the filth, He came and He bought us back and He cleaned us up and He made us His treasured possession. This is a beautiful passage. And then it says, Who are zealous for good works. Why do we do good works? Why do we do good works? It's not so that we can earn God's acceptance. It's because we have seen how much Jesus has done for us. We have seen that Jesus stepped out of the comforts of heaven, came to earth, died for our sins. Though He was innocent, though He never sinned, He died for our sins. And while we were rebels, while we were His enemies, while we shook our fist at Him, while we were the very kinds of people who nailed Him to that cross, He bought us and He cleansed us and He makes us His treasured possession. Now doesn't that want make you want to do something for Him? That's how He makes a people that are zealous for good works. It's not by a performance-based mentality of thinking, I need to do these things so I can be accepted before God. It's, look at what Jesus has done for me. I can't help but pour my life out in good deeds because of what He has done. I have been given so much, I must give generously. This is a beautiful passage. This morning when I preached this text, someone said, you did a good job, preacher. And I said, with a text like that, it's easy to preach. This is just beautiful. God, His grace, which is open to anybody who would believe. He has, His grace has appeared that trains us to renounce ungodliness, to live self-controlled lives while we look forward to the fact that He's coming and He's going to set everything right. Isn't it beautiful?
That's the gospel. Thank you for listening to this message from Redeemer Baptist Church of Panama. For more information, please visit us at RedeemerBaptistPanama.wordpress.com or you can like us on Facebook. Facebook.